thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we are continuing our study of the book of Leviticus, and last week what we have done is begun looking at the book not so much from the point of view of regulations and um, the law, but rather from the point of view of the subjective experience, that is the experience as to the subject, the Israelites living this law. And that involves, obviously, two parties. It involves the believer, the one who is coming to offer a sacrifice, and it involves also the priesthood. And you can see through the whole process, through this whole book, that God is very, very, very keen on the process itself. He leaves absolutely nothing to chance, and he gives them almost zero degree of freedom as to how they are to proceed. And I really want to attract your attention to this fact because we can be tempted to think that since God is in heaven and God created the universe and God created uh, the entire world, why should God worry about such minute details? We almost think like as if God is a CEO. He will set the strategy, the objectives, tells you what he wants, and then leaves the details to us to figure out. It is very interesting that in the case of the liturgy, he just doesn't do that. And if, any, if, if the book of Leviticus shows anything, is that precisely he doesn't leave the details to us. And I want to spend more time tonight thinking about that, reflecting on that. In fact, this was confirmed by the Lord himself. Jesus confirmed that when he told us, Every hair of your head is counted. Why would God bother counting hair? Why such an attention to details, to the minutest detail? Do you understand the question? You understand why I'm asking this question? It has a huge impact on our lives. Because you see, in a very fundamental, intrinsic, inherent way, 
we draw a limit. We have an invisible limit as to where God's action finishes and where ours begin. I'll give you examples. And I've given this example before, but it is worth repeating because we need repetition. You get up in the morning, you brush your hair. How many of us are actually grateful that you can pick a brush and brush your hair? Now, the guys who lost their hair, that might be thinking more about it than those who haven't. But you button your shirt. Do you take it for granted? Or are you aware of the grace of God allowing you this morning to button your shirt? You see what I'm saying? If we cannot find God in the littlest things, we will not find Him in the big things. Yeah? This is the way of St. Teresa, of little child Jesus. This is the way of St. Jose Maria Escriva, of Opus Dei. Those little things, little things. If you do them well, if you do them with attention and with love and with gratitude and joy, those littlest of things can change the world, can change your heart. You see, God has Israel in the wilderness. I'm going to come back to this. They are stuck for 40 years and He told them, you, this generation will not go into the Holy Land. You will die here. They're condemned to death. But in a sense, so are we. I think very few of us can hope to go to heaven body and soul. Is that a fair statement? All right. So we are in the same boat, aren't we? Okay. In many ways, our lives resemble a wilderness. Things out there are not the way we wish they were. Yeah? Whether in our neighborhoods, whether in, our, in a job market, whether in the morality of the country or the world. It isn't the way we wish they were. So we are also in the wilderness. Yeah? What is our focus? What are we thinking about? If we're coming from the Middle East, as some of us do, our focus is what's going on over there. The turmoil, the destruction, the Christians leaving, right? All that. If we come, we hail from Southeast Asia, we look to see what North Korea is up to, and China, and Japan, and we see also turmoil. If we come from Europe, we look at how the faith is leaving Europe, it seems, and it's turning it into a desert. There isn't a place in the world where we can turn and feel happy about. And if we're born in the United States, whichever way we look, we see problems. Yes? What are we tempted to do in our prayers? What do you think our prayers turn into? Pardon? A laundry list. It becomes a problem-solving proposition. Right? God, my brother doesn't believe, convert him. This is happening in Iraq. Please take care of them. Right? Yeah. 
So, without even noticing it, what, what kind of relationship do we have with God? Right? The business, exactly, right? It's as if God has a pizza place and we're just ordering pizza. You get it? Now, set that aside for a second and then turn to your own family. Because remember, God wrote three Bibles, not one, three. The universe is a Bible where we see His joy in creation. Then there is Scripture that we're studying. And the third Bible, no less important, is the family. You learn about God in your family. You're a father. You're a mother. You have a child. And the only time this child will come to talk to you is when he needs something. Now, will you turn him down? Will you throw him out? Will you, will you do that? No, you love the kid. But is that the relationship that you wish for him, let alone you, for him? Is that what you want for him? No. Yeah? Not only that, but he comes to you, and you're, let's say, his father or his mother, and he says, he says, hi. Or, hey. No, hi, mom. Hi, dad. No, let me give you a kiss. Right? No, how are you today? Nothing. Hey, now now let me ask you this question. In the grand scheme of things, is that hey or hi a big deal? On the surface of it, it isn't, right? But is it a big deal? No, it isn't in itself, but it's symptomatic. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of a much bigger problem. You understand? Okay, let me put it to you differently. You have a kid, he's three years old. He's three years old, yeah? You are the parents. Do you give this child who's three years old the freedom to decide what he's going to do that day? Do you? Do you let him sort of wander around the house and do whatever he feels like doing? Aren't you paying attention to the details? even the smallest detail with that kid, aren't you? Yeah. Why? Because you're an overbearing master? Because you just want, you're a a control freak? Is that it? No. Because you love the kid. Right? Okay. With Leviticus, you've got to bear that in mind. God goes down to the minutest details because He loves us. And he knows what is best for us. And many of us, when it comes to the spiritual life, are kids in diapers. We've not grown. Israel certainly didn't back then. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Here's the fascinating fact about Leviticus. God has some rules about Moral conduct. We're going to see that later when we get to that section of the book. But when it comes to moral conduct, he enunciates some principles. He doesn't go into the details. He doesn't, for instance, 
tell Israel how must a man marry a woman. There, nowhere in the book of Leviticus, or the whole Pentateuch for that matter, is there a regulation from God on how a man must marry a woman. Nothing is said about that. The only extensive details that God gives, down to the minutest level, when it comes to the liturgy. Isn't that odd? Think of it this way. Back to our three-year-old kid. He's in diapers. So you come, and then you spend most of your time teaching that kid hmm, to sing right. But when it comes to his behavior, you're going to leave it up to him for the most part. Does that make sense? Okay, the kid now is 10 years old. As a parent, you spend most of your time teaching the kid how to kneel properly. How to say the rosary properly. How to, be, to pray properly. That's where most of your effort is, but not on the other things. Does that make sense? Okay, that's our disconnect. That's where God and us part ways. Right there. This is where we lack faith. And this is where we show our control. When Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, he didn't add, and then you'll be able to do everything else. He said, and everything else will be given. Right? In, in, in the Hebrew mentality, which Jesus had, when he uses the, um, when he uses the um, unknown firm, right, will be given without specifying the subject, right? It, is, it stems from the fact that for the Israelites, you would never pronounce the name of the Lord. So they will oftentimes uh, um, use that kind of inversion, will be given. What he really means is that God will give you the rest. Yeah? Back to what I'm saying. If you were to teach that kid to pray well, everything else will be given unto him. That's our problem. That's where we start to lose ground. That's where we don't feel comfortable anymore. Because it goes against everything we've been told to do. That's the problem that Israel faced. So at the end of the day, what is God trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us a very simple lesson. But because it is so simple, it is really hard for us to learn. And the lesson is this. I am your father. I will take care of all your needs. You must trust me. Now, here's how we hear that. You are our father. We'll go to you when we have a problem. Other than that, trust us. This is it. This is the whole scripture 
up to the coming of Jesus, of course. Jesus is not just about that. I don't want to... But I'm talking about from our perspective, how we live our faith. So then, the reason why these details in the liturgy are important, and the reason why you hear me harp about our gestures, our posture, our position, is simply so that we can discipline ourselves to live in the trust of God. Because if I am not able to follow the rubric to the letter, when it's such a minute little detail, how can I curve my own will and my own pride in matters that I consider really important? Do you understand? Okay. That is the heart of the whole matter. And God, in Leviticus, shows us exactly what He wants done. So He goes all the way down to the details, and He keeps on repeating, holy, holy, holy. We cannot make ourselves holy. We can't. None of us can. All that we can do is show God that we love Him. That's it. But you show God that you love Him by doing what He asks you to do. Okay, in marital life. It's not that strange, right, if you really think about it. In marital life. If your wife likes flowers, you buy her flowers. Even for us guys, it might not make a lot of sense. But she loves flowers, so what do you do? You do something for her even though you don't completely understand. With me? If you go out and and you want to go to a restaurant, you ask her which restaurant she wants to go to. And you're willing to take her to a restaurant she likes because you love her. Yes? Okay. Well, how is that different from doing what God asks us to do? This is how we show we love Him. In those smallest things. And therefore, this whole, this whole book of Leviticus, if you take it at the formal level, then it's going to bore you to death. Because you're reading it like a manual. Almost like, uh, how do I program this thing? You're looking at it from the outside. Right? Let, me, let, me, let me give you an example. Um, let's say you're a young man and uh, you have met this young woman and you would like to um, get to know her to see if she's going to become your wife. And let's further say that you have nobody around you to talk. So you pick up a book on meeting young women. And the book gives you an algorithm. Okay? Um, Shave, uh, take a shower do your hair, um, dress with matching clothes, um, say hello, open the door, right? It just gives you a list of things to do. Now, let's assume for a second that you have a kind of a robotic mind. And you take all this list, and you see all the things you're supposed to do, and you do them in a random order. You open the door for the car, she sits in the car, then you shave. Are you missing something? Yeah, you're missing the, the lived, the experience, the understanding of what this whole thing means, yeah? So most of us apprehend Leviticus this way. Because it looks like that, that's all that it is to it, right? 
do this sacrifice and do that other sacrifice, and this piece you can burn, this piece you can eat, and this and then the other. So we get taken by the procedure, and we miss the language of love. That's the key. God, at the end of the day, is a mystery. We cannot understand God. But, but there is no... So for all of us, for all of us created beings, there is a limit to the understanding of God. Because none of us will understand God the way God understands God. Yeah? Therefore, there is a limit. But there is no limit to the way we can love Him. Because we're made to love God. The way God wish to be loved. So, how many... In the morning, when we start the day, we stand before God the Father and we ask this simple question. Lord, how do you wish me to love you today? What must I do to be pleasing in your sight? See, that's the proper outlook. But that's a liturgical outlook. That's an outlook of the liturgy. Because the whole point of the liturgy is to give glory to God. The whole point of the liturgical liturgy is to what? Come to the house of God and be holy. That is why this book and the life that Israel led could be said, without exaggeration, to be the holiest in the ancient world. Nothing could approach this. Because they had a language of love. So what I'm trying to do here is help you focus on not so much the details of Leviticus, but on the fundamental intent what God wished for Israel to do and then what you will notice is that well Israel like so many of us that is said not to do what the God what God told them to do right so then you notice God's love he doesn't abandon them he doesn't say forget you he comes back with a plan B Adapted to their state. And plan C. And plan D. And he never ever abandons them. Yeah? On that subject, and before I get um, in the text, I wanted to point something out to you about the love of Jesus Christ. Because there also, there is a misconception or misunderstanding of the love that Jesus bears for us. We all agree Jesus died on the cross for us, yes? Yes. Was that the primary reason why Jesus died on the cross? No. What was the primary reason? Exactly. Thank you, Rich. Jesus died on the cross because he loved his Father. Okay? He died on the cross because he loves his Father. And he wished to take away the iniquity of sin and the injustice caused to his father. Now, why is that the source of our joy? Why is that the source of our joy? Here's why. He died on the cross to give glory to his father. And his father is glorified by every soul that reaches heaven. Yeah? Therefore, Jesus desires for us to reach heaven as much as he loves his Father. 
And his call for us to reach heaven, therefore, is not rooted in our value, thank God, but it is rooted in the love he bears his Father. So that no matter what we do, no matter how deep our sins are, they can never, ever overshadow the love that Jesus has for his Father. That's why his mercy is unfathomable. That's why his mercy is an abyss, because it is as deep as the love he has for his Father. You understand? So there's absolutely never a reason for any of us to despair. Even if we fall every day, even if we're stuck in a habitual sin, even if we go to confession and we repeat it, go to confession and we repeat it, go to confession and repeat it, and it looks like we're making no progress, None. In fact, it might even seem we're going backward. Even that is no reason to say, I'm not worthy of heaven. I'm not good enough. Because Jesus loves his Father. And that love overshadows all our sins. Yeah? That is really important to keep reminding ourselves of. To keep reminding ourselves of. All right. Now, last time, we talked about how the priest, if he were, if he were to do a good job, would talk to the worshiper to see if the worshiper was sincere. The offering in Leviticus tells you what you're supposed to do, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the conversation must happen between the priest and the worshiper. And the worshiper, if he's offering a sin offering, meaning that he noticed that he did something that broke the law unwittingly, remember, but it was something that was against God's law, he comes and he's, he has to show repentance. He has to show that, show that he's sorry. Otherwise, that priest is not supposed to accept the offering. This is not an automatic car wash. It isn't, you come there, and regardless of how you feel or how you think or your disposition, you bring the cow, the cow is slaughtered, and then up, out comes a ticket that says you're done. Your intention, the way you are predisposed matters a great deal. And the priest is not supposed to accept this offering unless he can sincerely see that you are indeed repentant. Yeah? In 1 Samuel 15, 20 through 24, we read, And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the spoil... Sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? See, they were not supposed to take any spoil. They were supposed to destroy everything. They didn't do it. It was too tempting. So they took it and offered some of it as a sacrifice. Hey! Right? Here's God's part, and we keep the rest. Now notice Samuel. He, he doesn't even answer that. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. 
has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Now, here is the key, key thing that I want to bring to your attention. It's a very powerful statement. And it's a, it is a statement that requires a lot of pondering to understand it. There's a real depth here. Listen carefully and think about when we do not obey the liturgy to the letter. When we are rebellious. Listen to what Samuel says. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Not interesting? For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Let me phrase that a little differently. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being a father, from being a husband, from being a mother, from being a wife. The, the, back to what I said earlier. A marriage between a man and a woman is a daily miracle. Those of us who have been married for some time know that. You live that. It's a daily miracle. It requires transformation. It requires humility. It requires understanding. It requires to give of yourself and give and give and keep on giving. None of us can do that. Left to ourselves, we'll all be divorced. We cannot do that. It isn't in us to do that. It is the grace of the Holy Spirit flowing in our hearts that propel us forward. But if we rebel, we close the door. We say to the Holy Spirit, we don't need you. Thank you very much. We're good. And the rest ensues. You understand? So, in many, many ways, to the degree that you're cultivating a real love to the church, a real love, filial love to the Catholic church, to the degree that you do not see the church as an institution, but as a mother, to the degree that you obey the laws of the church joyfully, not because you're asked, to the degree that you go to Mass and wish to celebrate Mass perfectly, not because you have to. To that degree... You have the life of grace in your heart. Because the two are intimately linked. That's what Leviticus is telling us. At least in the case of Saul, he said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because, and oh, I wish that some of our bishops and priests would hear that. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Okay. So, Let's move on now to the offering that the high priest had to make every day. 
please keep your questions for later. I said, we all have the tendency to be afraid of the voice of the people and not do what God asks us to do. And we should always remind ourselves of that. That's all. So the Lord said to Moses, This is the offering which Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on a day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular cereal offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a, gr- on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a cereal offering and offer it for a pleasing order to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every seal offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. No degrees of freedom. All the way into the details. How they're going to prepare it. Who's going to prepare it. How they're going to cook it. Where it's going to be cooked. Do you notice? No degrees of freedom. Now if we had time, which we don't, and we were to study this in the full meaning of those symbols, we can understand what God is doing. There is theology built into all these activities. I'll give you an example from modern life that you can relate to. I usually advise folks, even though it's permitted, you can do it, I advise people not to receive communion under both species when they're offered separately. That's an advice. But there's a really good reason for it. We learn theology with our body more than with our mind. So repeated actions teach us Something about behaviors. Yeah? When you go repeatedly receiving, you hear somebody say to you, the body of Christ. Then you step over and you hear someone telling you, the blood of Christ. What are you conditioning yourself to believe? Here's the body and here's the blood. They're separate. You need both. You understand? Now, you're not trying to learn that. You're not trying willfully to change your belief. But repeat it long enough, it'll settle down. Yeah? Praxis make belief. What we practice is what we believe. So, here, God is not leaving anything out to the people to decide because he's teaching them what and how they must behave. So, let's take an example. The son of the high priest is the one who prepares the offering. That offering is to prepare twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. Now, think about it. You are to succeed your father as your high priest. Hmm? Your father is 60 years old. And hypothetically speaking, let's say that your father passes away when he's 75. So for 15 years of your life, what are you going to do? Prepare the morning and the evening offering. And notice, there is no day off. You don't get Sundays off. Yeah? Every day, in the morning and in the evening, you're preparing this offering. What do you get out of it? Do you get recognition? No. You don't. So, worldly speaking, what are you getting out of it? Pardon? Discipline? Well, yeah, no, no, no. In the, from the eyes in the world, 
right? No reputation, no power, no reward, no nothing. You're preparing a bread in the morning and a bread in the evening. And you're offering them up. And probably nobody pays attention. Yeah? What do you think this is doing in the heart of that man who's going to become the high priest? What is the first thing it's teaching him? You serve, exactly. You are a servant. You serve. You are to be humble. You are to be faithful. You are not to expect any reward. You are to do it because God asked you to do it. You can even eat the thing you're preparing. Yeah? Now, if you do it every day, day in, day out, and you reflect on that, reflect on that, Personally, how would you feel about it? For your own aspiration and your own ambition and your own satisfaction, would you be happy about it? No, you wouldn't. You're with me? Does God know that you would not be happy about it? Yeah. Would He expect you to be happy about it? No. And there is the crucial step. That's the step that Adam didn't take. That's the step that Lucifer didn't take. That's the step that Jesus Christ took. If you're unhappy about it, what are you supposed to do? Go to your father and trust and tell him. And your father who is in heaven will reward you. You get it? That's how you create that relationship with God. Did Jesus do that? Yes. yes. Where? Before the cross. In Gethsemane. Father, if possible, let this cup pass by me. He wasn't happy about it. But not my will, your will. That is the crucial step. That Adam didn't take when he was alone in the garden. That Lucifer didn't take. And so often we don't take. We sit and brood in the corner. Here's one example. Why the details are important. Because they're formative. They teach you the discipline of the faith. And if you accept it, make you holy. In the movie on the life of um, St. uh, St. Philip Neri, which is a great movie. I, I highly recommend you watch it. One of the followers of St. Philip Neri, uh, a young priest, brilliant mind, wrote a thesis, a theology. And he wanted it published. St. Philip put him in a kitchen. His job was to cook. So that young priest hung his diploma In the kitchen. And it stayed there for maybe 10 years. And then one day, St. Philip Neri walks in the kitchen and he sees a a, a group of little kids who are learning how to write. So this priest is teaching them. And they need something to write on. Turns around, takes his diploma, throws it to pieces and gives each a piece of paper for them to write. St. Philip tells him, okay, you can come out now, you're ready. Yeah? So many of us have secret desires and ambitions and goals and achievements. And this is great. God created us this way. 
to do wonderful things. So I'm not putting these things down. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying if you're ambitious and you want to do great things, you want to succeed in business or, you know, do, you know, become rich so you can help others. Wonderful. Wonderful. You can glorify God this way. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that at all. The problem is beware not to do those things for your own glory. And oh, so easy is it for us to fall into that trap. So God disposed his priests to follow a certain way that protects them from these vices and help them to grow in the virtue. And the liturgy is structured to do the same thing for us if we participate in the liturgy the way we're supposed to participate. It is structured, divinely structured, to help us, to protect us from the vices and help us to grow in the virtues. Okay? So the high priest's offering was made without incense, offered twice daily, prepared by the successor to the high priest, and burned completely rather than eaten. So the whole point is that the priest, the high priest himself sets an example to the whole congregation, that he himself is offering for his own sins twice a day. So if the high priest does that, what excuse do you have not to do the same? Yeah? So God sets that high priest as an example. So it was very important for the priest to maintain clearly and demonstrably a wholehearted dedication to the service of the Lord. He did it at his ordination, but it had to be perpetually visible to the people. Perpetually visible to the people. Uh, Saint, um, Saint Francis de Sales, who was the bishop of, uh, he was in, in, in Belgium, Brussels, or forgot what town he was the bishop of, where it was in an area that's predominantly Protestant. Saint Francis de Sales is credited with bringing 80,000 people back to the faith. Yeah? He's the one who said, it is far easier to attract a fly with a spoon of honey than with a barrel of vinegar. I'm talking about the gentleness of Christ. And I always tell the story of this one man who thought that St. Philip Neri was all show. Because he was reputed. Everybody knew about him because when he celebrated Mass when he entered the church and he knelt before the Blessed Sacrament, that kneeling struck people the way he did it. So this man said, he does it because of the people. He's a showman. So he waited for everybody to leave to catch him. And then here comes St. Francis de Sales, and he knelt exactly the same way. And that converted that man, brought him back into the church. The way you worship can affect people around you very deeply. <clears throat> and so it is very important that we pray for our priests and for our bishops so that when they celebrate the liturgy, we can see that they are completely taken by the liturgy and by nothing else. So God, God's ministers, the priests, could not expect the people to do what they were unwilling to do. Makes sense, right? Okay, so now the sin offering. 
The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron and his sons, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is sprinkled on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. And the earthen vessel in which it it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned with fire. Notice the, de- the attention to those details. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we say that all the vestments and all the um, um, vessels must be made of a noble metal, right? You don't want to bring anything that you use in daily life up on the altar because it is holy, right? So you don't want to profane the church. And profane, the word comes from the Latin, profanum, which means outside the temple, So the idea is that you take something from outside the church and bring it into the church or vice versa. So the chalice, for instance, is consecrated. Therefore, you don't pour beer in the chalice. And there's nothing wrong with beer. But putting beer into the chalice is an act of profanation. You're with me? Yeah. Likewise, you do not have gestures that are common in your home brought into the church. You don't sit with the same ease. You don't sit as if you're home when you're in the church. You don't behave as if you're home when you're in the church. Nor do you speak about things that could be spoken outside into the church. If people come to you and want to say hi to you, that happens to me all the time, I always do this and I point outside. I don't talk inside the church unless it's urgent, necessary, or it's about the faith. But other than that, it can wait till we're outside. And then, by the way, speaking needlessly inside the church is a venial sin. For these reasons. You're essentially ignoring God who is still present, even though Mass is finished. Heaven is still right before you, and now you're turning around and having a conversation over your car right in front of God. How is that showing veneration? How is that showing adoration? How is that showing that you're really here to do God's will? Do you understand? We have to recover that kind of piety, right? And the love of God that was the hallmark of the Catholic Church. It used to be that the kneeling in the Catholic Church during consecration would convert people because it would be perfectly silent. We've got to be able to recover the beauty of the liturgy, and when we do that, we can talk the world because our prayers then will be heard, and God will take care of the rest. That, that's how it works. Right? Instead, we decided to divorce the two. We set the church here. We go and we pray, mainly for our own needs or maybe the needs of people we know around us. And then we go deal with the world afterwards. But the two will not connect. That's a trick of the devil. Right? That's how, how, this is how he weakens Catholics and make them unable to deal with the world and its problems. All right.
The reason why a priest must <clears throat> take a sin offering so carefully is because people need to know they've been forgiven. This is somebody bringing a sin offering because they committed a sin inadvertently. If it was not done with the utmost care and treated as holy, the people might not have a con- conviction that God heard my prayer. You understand? So not only do we, do we um, offend God when we don't behave the way we're supposed to, but we're also offending people around us. So and effectively, you can think of it as sort of practical theology. How forgiveness is communicated to the penitent is what this liturgy is all about, by showing the utmost care. The reason why he, God is so specific about where you offer that sin offering is to make it absolutely clear that if you want to receive forgiveness, this is where you're going to come. Don't go out in the desert, sit on a dune, and then uh, pray to God for forgiveness and hope you're going to be forgiven. That notion, I don't need to go to confession, I just pray to God and he forgives me, is unbiblical all the way back to the time of Israel. Because we are made of flesh and blood. We need to hear the words and be convinced in our hearts. And most importantly, there is a corporate aspect to it, which is that when we sin, not only are we offending God, but we've offended the church. Therefore, we have to ask forgiveness of the church. You know that very well. If you're driving on the highway and there's an accident ahead of you, you have nothing to do with the accident. You're going to the airport to pick a plane, to get on a plane. There's an accident, and it's backed up. You missed the plane. That action up there affected you. Sin works the same way. My sin, your sin, affects everyone around us in the same exact way. So that's when we go to confession, we're not only asking forgiveness from God, we're asking forgiveness from the church because we've heard the body of Christ. We've heard the church. So it was in Israel. You committed a sin. You're now aware of it. You just go in a little corner out there in the wilderness to talk to God on your own. You go in front of the whole congregation. They see you going to the tent. They see you bringing an offering. They know you committed a sin and they know you are here, you've come here to ask forgiveness. This is why it needed to be done in that specific way. All right, so the sin offering, I'll stop here, and then next week we'll deal with the guilt offering, which is the next chapter. And with that, we would be done with the entire sacrificial structure of Leviticus, and we'll move on to talk about the priest, and then we'll talk about the, lay, the lady. That's, that's how this, this Bible study is going to be structured. We talked about the sacrifice, and we talk about the priests, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to live, and then we'll talk about the, 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 the lay folks which will will follow afterwards. The sin offering, let it be, again, let let, let us be reminded of this, is when someone, an Israelite, committed, broke a law, broke one of the commandments inadvertently, meaning not on purpose, right? Because, again, the whole Levitical process could not forgive sins committed purposely. That will, will have to wait until the grace of God flows into the world for Forgive, excuse me, for forgiveness of personal sins to be granted to us. Nevertheless, it was a training. It was a teaching. It was in preparation of. 
Yeah? When you committed such a thing and you, on your own, realized it, because you could realize it and say nothing and stay put. Yeah? If you don't do anything, what would happen? What would happen? Well, Scripture intimates, indicates that God will then take action. God will take action. God will come and ask your due. And in Israel, the idea was that it would be related to an, to an untimely death, a sudden death. Um, something that would have happened to you suddenly, unexpectedly. And they would always look at that as a punishment from God. Now, whether they were right all the time or not, that's a different question, but that's how they understood it. In other words, there was no escape. If you did not, if you, if you noticed that you've done something, if you remembered that you did something, breaking a law, and you don't go offer a sacrifice for it, two things happen. Number one, the wrath of God will be on you. And number two, your sin affects everybody. The Israelites had a very keen conscience of the corporate dimension of personal sins. Yeah? We've lost that. We think of our sins as ours. Just me and God, right? And then everybody else is out. That mean God mentality is not Catholic. It's more of a Protestant mentality. In fact, it's me and Jesus. It's even worse. Right? It could never be me and Jesus. If you're in a me and Jesus relationship, uh, you, you've got a problem. Because it is me and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? It's the Trinity. And then Our Lady and the saints and the angels and all the people in purgatory and all the brothers and sisters you have around you, right? And Latin rite makes it very, very clear in the penitential rite. I confess and so stop right there. That one part of the confiteor. To you my brothers and sisters. Do you look around? Brothers and sisters. You're confessing to them. Or do we just say it because we have to say it and we're not even thinking about it? Is it, I confess to God and to you, blip, that I have sinned through my own fault. And, right? Just forget the brothers and sisters. Now, you notice how, as I said earlier, the, the family is a Bible. If you're coming from a broken family, where you can't stand your brothers and sisters, where you had issues with your fathers and mo- and, and father and mother, that part is really hard. Confess to who? That guy I hate over there? No way. I'm not going to confess to him. So the purification, so, so if you really pay attention to the confiteor, it has a huge implication on the way you apprehend your family members, especially the ones with whom, with whom you have issues. You cannot confess to the people around you when you hate that guy who's your brother or you hate her because she's your sister and you can't stand her and you will not forgive her for what she's done to you. How could you confess to the people around you? Was it, what, was it, what, what, did you understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah. The liturgy forces you to really think about uprightness, about honesty, about being right with God, therefore being right with people around you. So that's why this particular sacrifice was offered to the Israelites. It's an act of mercy on God's part. 
to help them come and confess their sins and teach them humility. Teach them the love of God. Teach them to trust in God. Trust in His mercy. There is no doubt in my mind, the more we reflect on this, that there is no, absolutely no doubt that, that in the limbo of the just, there were a whole host of Israelites who were truly just because they lived the law out of love for God. And when Christ came, they received Him with joy because they recognized Him for the merciful God that they saw in this liturgy. So then, when you go to Mass, do you recognize Jesus as that merciful God that is coming to you and wanting to change you and help you and give you all the joy of the world? Are you growing in that trusting relationship with Him by looking at those little things in your lives? Or do you conceive of difficulties and sufferings and, and wish that were denied and desires that were that gone unsatisfied and perhaps a life that did not bear the fruits you thought it would bear? Do you look at those things as limitations imposed on you by God? Do you think of them as a failure? Or do you see in them the constant loving discipline of God saving you from yourself? You know, I was at the, at the doctor. I had an appointment and I'm waiting. For once, I'm early. doesn't happen that often. So, I have my iPad with me, and I like to play a game called Mahjong. It's like a puzzle game. So, here I am sitting, enjoying my game, all by myself. Now, the two receptionists are having a conversation. And they are loud. They've included me in this conversation, whether I want it or not. How do you think I'm reacting to that? They are interfering with my game. Yeah? Notice, they're interfering with my game. It's one peace, peaceful moment in my day that I'm by myself. I can just focus on a little game. I'm happy. Well, they're making me unhappy. They get louder. So finally, I'm forced to tune in on the conversation. And then I realized that this one lady is telling the other lady about some older lady who's 74 years old and who's dying. And then I realize why they're being so loud. God is knocking on my shoulder. Pray for her. Okay. How do you think I felt about that? I was overjoyed, right? Couldn't you have picked another moment? I have a game to play here. Okay, so I'm grumbling. I put this thing away. I say my decade of rosary. My appointment comes. Get in a car. And I'm really close to a place that offer my favorite bre- breakfast. And so I'm tempted to break my fast and go have breakfast. All by myself. And then the voice of that other lady comes back in my ear. It's like, aren't you going to finish this rosary that you started for this lady who's dying? 
So, what do I say? All right, Lord, okay, I'll offer breakfast for her. Do you think I was happy doing this? No. We're talking about somebody who's dying, and maybe I'm the only one who just happened to be there who's going to pray for her. Maybe nobody else will. Who knows, right? Maybe that one rosary is all she's going to get. Do you think I can bring my heart to rejoice into this? I lost my breakfast. Our heart is heart. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard for us to do the right thing. Never easy. But the good Jesus knows that. Right? So, in these moments, we should be able to turn around and say, Hey, what, are you, what did you expect? It's me, right? Not take it too seriously, because that's all we can do. On our own, we can do nothing. So he knows that. Those are the moments where we turn and we trust God, even when we are upset or we are not happy with the choice or we are feeling as if God has left us out. We overcome all this by faith and we say, I trust in you. And the more we pay attention to the little things, the more they act as a guard against our pride, against our sense of rebellion, against our selfishness, and against our lack of generosity. Make sense? All right. Let's end with the word prayer and we take some questions. All right, questions. How do you reconcile it? Excellent question. So what Rich is alluding to, I gave him a law by which I could not live is in Ezekiel. God told Ezekiel, I gave him a law by which I could not live. This whole law of Leviticus was not a law that they could live by meaning spiritually be alive, right? Now, obviously, they lived, so it wasn't about uh, physical life. It was about a spiritual life, right? So if that's the case, which it is, how could then we be talking about the fact that the law could actually lead them, right, to live a virtuous life in front of God? How could it? Well, it doesn't. Look at it this way. <clears throat> Um, your son wants to learn how to fly a plane. Okay? So, you decide to buy him a flight simulator. Right? Flight simulator is actually, by today's standard, is, uh, is, is used to train pilots. I mean, it is so precise, right? How many of you have ever played Flight Simulator? Okay. How many of you managed to get a plane to take off without crashing it? I didn't. I gave up on my 12th try. Okay, pull on the lever, pull on the lever, the plane takes off, wait a minute, whoops, and then crash. So if your kid actually plays that game for... um, for uh, two, three hours without reading the manual, which is now about 150 pages thick, right? What is he going to learn? Well, you're a bad pilot. But what is he learning? He's learning that he can't learn to be a pilot this way. So it's the negative aspect that the law will give you. I cannot do it. But my father is a pilot. 
Let me go ask him. So the intent of the law was to train them in the understanding that they needed God for them to be able to live. So those who truly followed the law truly turned to God. And God gave them the life they needed. That's the key. And so this is how St. Augustine summarizes it. The law was given so that grace we may seek. So if you live the law, you recognize it doesn't have what it takes for me to live. So what do I do? I go ask God. Because the law had taught me, at the very least, to have a trusting relationship with Him. Not even the law would do that. But I mean, as a vehicle, it would move me in this way. And then God will do the rest. And grace was given so that the law we may keep. It's in that cycle. Right? So God, you, your son comes and says, okay, I want to drive. Never driven a car. Okay, here are the keys. Well, to this virtual car. Right? Go drive it. You go sit in this virtual simulator and you crash the car every single time. If you are in a good relationship with your dad, what are you going to do next? Dad, please help me. Okay. The kid should have asked you right away, hey, dad, am I ready to drive the car? You have said, no, you're not. You're going to wait. And he would have said, yes, dad. That would have been plan A. That's what Adam was supposed to do. Right? He was supposed to do that. Why? Because God gave him the garden, gave him a shovel, and told him, you guard and you till. It wasn't vacation. You work this garden, you're protected, and you work it. And God knew that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. He knew that. Therefore, Adam wasn't happy. Did Adam say anything? Did he go to God and say, I'm really unhappy here? Something is missing? Nothing. Nothing. God had to come and say it out loud. Out loud. It is not good for the man to be alone. And then God had to come and give him Eve. And, and, and Adam saw Eve. And we went from at last, flesh from my flesh, bone from my bone, to the woman you put here gave me the apple and I ate it. You see that? There was something broken. There was something vitiated in him for him to act this way. It was pride. And so... In the cases of many of us, the same thing happens. So what does God do? He gives us first a law to teach us what we need. Because we don't even seem to be able to say what we need. That's the purpose of the law. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Right. Exactly. It happened mostly on a personal level. It never happened at the community level. As a community, Israel repented many times. But after they've fallen... They never had the understanding that the law as it is given is not enough. In fact, they institutionalized it and defined holiness by it. Because by the time Jesus came, if you're holy, it means you're separated. You are separate from anything unholy. So if you touch a leper, the leper contaminates you. So what does that tell you? The law has no power over sin. Jesus comes... Here's the leper asking him, if you will, you can heal me. Jesus touches him. He didn't have to. He touches him. 
Here you can see the flow going the other way. The holy makes the unholy holy. That's the power of grace. But the perfect example of one who truly is expressing this, that we've sinned, we've fallen short, is Daniel. This is the prayer that all of us can make our own. The prayer of Daniel in the book of Daniel. Uh, Yes. You see, that, if you have a problem, come back to me, which seems so natural, assumes so much. It assumes a loving relationship. It assumes a trusting relationship. It assumes someone who's mature, who is willing to enter into this relationship. Think of it this way. Suppose someone has a child, a boy, who's 18 years old, and who is a drug addict. You put laws to control his behavior to help him, yes? But you'll never add, and if you have a problem, come back to me. Because you know where this is going to lead him. So what did the Israelites demonstrate? They had a problem when Moses was up on the mountain. They couldn't wait. What did they do? The golden calf. Right? So God knew that the state that they were in already requires this quarantine. Requires that they put them, he kind of move them out of Egypt to wean them off all the, all the celebrations of Egypt. Right? Think of it this way. You have a kid, forget the drugs, loves rock and roll, loves loud music, loves partying, loves, um, you know, going from girl to girl, all that stuff. Can you take him with you on a retreat in a monastery? Well, you can try, but, or he's going to stay, right? Yeah. So you don't come back to me, right? It's, you're forceful in that situation because he needs it, and he doesn't know what he needs. That's the problem, right? So that's why there is no, at this point, come back to me. Where do we see the come back to me? It happens, actually. Multiple places. Isaiah is one. When? In Isaiah. Well, it's plenty of places in Isaiah. But the first example, the first place in Isaiah, which is striking, is the first time that Isaiah has a vision of heaven, which is the same vision that John will have in the the book of Revelation. And he says, because he sees God sitting on his throne and the cherubim and the seraphim around him. And he says... Woe to me, for I am about to die. I am a man of unclean lips. He thought, that's it, I'm dying, because I've seen God. Right? Watch to come back to me. A seraphim, who's usually, usually those, those, those levels of angels, the highest, never deal with us. A seraphim takes a burning coal, comes down to him and says, the coal touched your lips, you are now made clean. Now think about that for a second. What does that mean you're now made clean? Is it the, the, the cleanliness of the law? Because that would not allow them to see God. They can't enter into the Holy of Holy. That's a cleanliness that allows him to see God. What cleanliness is that? Grace. He received the grace of Jesus Christ right there and then. Talk about it. Come back to me. Daniel, likewise. Gabriel is sent to him to tell him, to explain to him. You see that? 
And the biggest comeback to me of them all is Our Lady. How could that be? I know not men. And Gabriel explains. Zachary, on the other hand, doesn't get it. Well, um, well, because of this, you're not going to... There's no more come back to me. You're going to be mute until the baby's born. I'll teach you. You see the difference, right? So I am certain that for those who really lived a pious life, there was a lot of come back to me. They entered into that. That's what he wanted. He wanted them to enter this relationship and dialogue with him. Whereas most of them, all they wanted was... Tell us what you want, we'll do it, and give us our fish and meat and lentils and a good life, and we're happy. Thank you very much. Do you understand? God walked in the garden with him every day. There's no excuse. Every day God was with him in the garden. He saw God face to face. Now, it's really a mystery why he, he, he'd fallen so low. It's a real mystery. How could someone like him fall so low? Yes, exactly. Pride is, a, is the one sin that we cannot fight on our own because we don't see it, right? Pride is not a sin that we can reason easily because if you think about it and if you say, oh, I'm full of pride, well, that sounds like an act of humility, right? But if you say that, aren't you being proud? But if you notice that you're being proud, aren't you being humble? But then aren't you being proud? You see? It's one of those sins that is sitting behind us, not in front of us. Gluttony, you can see it. Right? right? Your gluttonous. No, I'm just having my third pie. You, you can see it, right? Lust, you can see it. Most of those sins, you can see them. Pride, you can't. It takes someone else to point it out to you. That's why our faith is communal. Okay, we cannot do it on our own. Yes. Sure. Absolutely. The fire had to stay on. It was never allowed to be um, to, to go extinguished. They had to carry the fire with them. Yes. Not all Levites became priests, right? So not all the tribe of Levi, were of the priests, so they had to be the family of Aaron. The others had the Gershonites and the, uh, all the other ones that we studied in the book of Exodus. They had other tasks, like carrying, dismantling the tent and bringing back together. They were all in the service of God, but not all of them were priests. But the son of the high priest, the, the, the firstborn, would become a priest, yes. No options. No options, Yes. So the fire was, um, when the temple was consecrated, God did that. Yes. Um, and then afterwards, he didn't. Yes. So there were no more fire. So the fire was not kindled by God in, in the second temple, and certainly not in the third. Yeah. There was no, in fact, in the third, because, because here's what happened. Isaiah hid, is Isaiah or Jeremiah? One of the two, remember which one, hid the tabernacle, the, the ark, and they were never recovered it. So therefore, the, the, the Holy of Holies was empty. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, I mean, he, he completely understands the importance of liturgy, but he also knows that we are living in, in a world where we've hardened our hearts when it comes to the worship of God. So the liturgy has been watered down uh, significantly, 
to sort of come to our level. Uh, so hence, all the uh, holy days of obligation move to Sundays. Uh, hence, the fact that in Latin rite, which is still unfathomable to me, I just cannot understand that, that you celebrate the Passion on a Sunday, on Palm Sunday. The Passion on a Sunday. Is anybody with me? Is a short circuit here? The Sunday is the day of the resurrection. But, you, but, but for Easter, in the Latin rite, they celebrate the Passion on the Sunday, Palm Sunday. Okay. Because of the hardness of the heart, it sounds like people don't want to go and make an effort on the Friday. I'm talking here. I'm, I'm talking here. I don't know about what, what other places do, but here, right? How could, how could we celebrate the Passion on a Sunday? It sounds so... The reading of the Passion of Jesus Christ is celebrated in the crucifixion, the whole thing, on the Sunday, on Palm Sunday. It's more than ambiguous. It's, it's catechetically, it's wrong. Sunday is the day of the resurrection. We don't celebrate the Passion. You see what I'm saying? So, but those have been all done because, for, because to accommodate our lifestyle. So here we're bending to our lifestyle instead of making our lifestyle bend to a life of holiness. So that's what we're fighting. Right? That's what we're fighting. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.